up, what up? Chad, Chad. Good day, mate. Chad, cow. Grass. Good day, mate. How's things? <laughs> Chad, you sounded just like <laughs> just like Chris. <laughs> I uh, I've been in I've been in Australia for uh, about a month, a little over a month, and so I've been picking up on the lingo. What, are they, what else do they say over there? Huh? So what else do they say over there that you've been picking up on? They have on? this weird obsession, and I don't understand why, but the Australians have a weird obsession about shortening every word, right? You, couldn't, you can't just say breakfast. You have to say brekkie. You can't say McDonald's. Yeah. You have to say Macker's. You can't say afternoon. You can have to say, like, Ave. Ave. Like, Ave. Ave, whatever they call it. Like, it just, everything needs to be shortened. For some fucking reason, it's, it's economy of effort. I guess, I guess so. <laughs> Very efficient. I've never heard that afternoon one. I'm I'm totally out of the loop on the afternoon thing. The other funny, yeah, it's just like oh, I do it in the avo. It's just simple. Oh, I do it in the afternoon. <laughs> gotcha. That one has that one hasn't made it over here. Literally, never heard it. <laughs> One of the other funny things I kind of realize is that they, they have a tendency to constantly tell each other that everything's okay. <laughs> like every time you go talk to somebody, it's, it's like, you know, just like, like just a minute. And then you always end it with like a no dramas, no worries, you know, all good, mate. Or like everything always has to be ended in some sort of like reaffirmation that everything's okay. Don't need to freak out. <laughs> yeah. We are. What's the worst that can happen? She'll be right. Okay. <laughs> She'll be all right. It is. It is a bit fast though. It's, we always understate things as well. <laughs> Generally, got bit by a spider. Should be all right. <laughs> I, when I was in America, I went to Subway and I was, I was asking for capsicum. They're like, "What the hell is a capsicum? Have you have you come across that? Like peppers?" No, that's the that's the other very fascinating about Australia that I, that I learned is that like the amount of biodiversity in Australia with foods, fruits, animals. Like there are animals out there that I went to go visit. And I saw that like I've never even seen or ever heard about. And then there's like there's just so much diversity in in Australia. It's crazy. Crazy. I just know there's like. 10 inch spiders over there so <laughs> yeah they're definitely large spiders and you know yeah, you do want to see some large spiders and mosquitoes and everything else is large there so just... I saw some like I think I saw like a 5 or 6 meter crocodile and a crocodile is a scary thing because literally its bite force is not only the strongest bite force in the animal kingdom everywhere, like more than a great white, it's actually twice the bite force of a Tyrannosaurus Rex. Like their jaws are incredibly fucking strong. You don't just like, it doesn't just crush you, it bursts your body. <laughs> Do not get bitten by one in, of these guys. In, in Northern Australia, there was a, there was a big storm um, and someone's house, like on the Esplanade, they had a pool in this house that was right by the water. <laughs> After the storm, a crocodile was in the pool. In <laughs> some person's pool. 
It's just nuts. Yeah, it is a crazy species of animal. I went to go visit some, and this guy, this like crocodile, like kind of a handler guy, right? Just like salt of the earth Aussie guy. Like he's been around them so much that he like puts his hand in the mouth of an actual crocodile because he knows how to handle it correctly. He'll like sit on the thing's back and just kind of chill. <laughs> I'm just like, dude, that thing will wreck you. <laughs> Get away from that fucking thing. It's crazy. Yeah, how many fingers that guy got? It's like, <laughs> it's crazy. He's like, there's a specific part of the mouth you can put your finger on, and the croc will never shut its mouth. Or like, and it, when it shuts its mouth, it's like extraordinarily fast. It's like a lot of power. Like, it actually makes a clapping sound. It's pretty. It's pretty incredible. But he's like, he's right now, he's actually literally trying to raise the and break the Guinness Book of World Records of the largest crocodile ever. And so that's the one that he was kind of showboating, putting his finger in his mouth and sitting on his back and that kind of stuff. It's not, it's not there. They used to get like seven or eight meters, but back in the day, they were hunted extensively. Yeah, I mean, if if you don't, if you're not like a, if you're an American, like seven or eight meters is like almost the size of a school bus. Like it's it's a massive, it's like probably two or three car lengths. You know, it's incredibly large. Uh, I'd rather a shark any day uh, <laughs> for a crocodile because um, croc- sharks will bite you and have a nibble. Crocodiles will, they're out to get you. That's that's why they're so dangerous. That's why it's so fearful. Yeah, that's why I think they're swimming up north. Yeah, I asked the guy like uh, just out of curiosity, like if you were ever bitten by a croc, like what is what is the thing that you do? Like do you like gouge the eyes or like you scream, play dead? Like what what is the actual recommendation? And he's just like, ah, I mean, if it gets you, it gets you. There's nothing you're gonna do at that point. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. You're just gonna be, you're just gonna be dead at that point. Like you can all right, go for the eyes if you'd like to. I mean, it doesn't hurt. You know, you're already like you know, but you're you're not getting out of it. You're you're dead. <laughs> I'm just like oh, okay, all right. <laughs> okay. With bears, you play dead. With sharks, you gouge the eyes. But with crocs, you just fucked. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so you hit the nose hard enough. You might, but yeah, your chances are very, very slim. Yeah, extremely slim. Very slim. Because they'll just take you straight under and hold you there. They can hold their breath for like half hour. Yeah, much longer than you. That's for sure. You can't. Yeah. And they're powerful as hell. Like, they're huge and strong. They, they grab you, and if you don't die from the bite instantly, which could happen, it'll just drag you into the water. You'll be dead within probably 30 seconds or a minute. Probably, probably less. Probably under 15 seconds, I'm guessing. Those things are terrifying. And by the way, I actually went like hunting in the outback where there's actual crocs and like walked along the river with these, you know, these these guys who know what they're doing. I don't know what the hell I'm doing. And I'm like, the guys are just like, just, you know, keep your eyes on the water a little bit. You know, if you see any water, even shallow water, just like keep an eye on it. I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> I'll keep my eye out for a fucking crock. <laughs> Damn, man. So, so you ship lending and then you're taking all kinds of risks now. <laughs> yeah. That was that was an interesting experience, sleeping in the outback. 
Yeah, I start sleep more than 10 meters from the water as well. Yeah. I don't sleep on the bank. No, you'd be dead. Even when we, when we were sleeping away from the water, like throughout the night, you would just hear all sorts of animals and stuff. It's just very alive. Like there were points where like there were like dingoes, literally probably, I would say maybe one or two feet from my head. But I was inside the tent, so I, I could hear them. I could hear the sniffing, hear them walking around. But I knew they were like right outside of my tent. I was like, all right, I better not get out of this tent because that dingo is going to eat me. <laughs> should be all right. So good. <laughs> no dramas. No dramas, <laughs> mate. Well, welcome back, uh, safe side, Chad. Thank you, sir. Yeah, man, it's been like it's only been two and a half weeks since we shipped landing. I feel like it's been forever now. I, it can't just be me. I don't know. No, it's no, it's not just you. It's just like the D five just moves at the speed of light, so everything seems like it's going, you know, faster than reality is, or slower, I should say. Yeah, it's on the docket. You want to run through uh, V121, the next next version coming out? Yeah. Uh, so next version, which hopefully will come out within a week-ish, right, right around there. And the primary – there's two primary features of this that I can remember, at least from the top of my head. Maybe if I look at the actual merge PR, I'll just think of another one. But uh, the, the two primary things is – one is for – key gens to retry more quickly so uh, as people might have noticed like we're having some difficulties getting the key gen to be more smooth in terms of the, the churn process and so what happens is every three days it never tries to do a, a churn or key, and generate new keys and if it fails to do so for whatever reason it'll retry like basically every hour on the hour until it gets a you know a, a, a successful key gen and so the change is basically going to retry it every, instead of every hour, it'll retry every five minutes or 10 minutes, something like this. And so we'll, we'll increase the number of attempts, you know, by about five or six X or something like this, so that uh, things go a little bit faster. You know, uh, that's one, one thing we've been trying to get through. Um, the second thing is mostly around integrating streaming swaps into uh, savers. So you enter and exit savers, you get a much lower fee. So the yield that you generate while you're a saver kind of stays in your pocket in a matter of speaking. And the same thing for lending so that you can stream open a, a loan for, uh, for a stream open or stream close uh, a loan for lending. And that's going to be really key because I think uh, I've heard from several people that there are, there are people who want to take out larger scale loans but they're not doing so because it's just the slip fees are just too much for their for their taste. So once we get this all integrated and running, then I, I, I'm hoping that we'll start to see lending kind of kick up a good amount. Cool. Yeah. So mostly just streaming swap integrations into uh, into lending and to savers, which will be pretty big and entering and exiting with uh with lower slip is going to be really nice especially for people who are trying to yeah do larger size and uh i mean we, we've seen this just the success of streaming swaps across just like how much larger we can get swap sizes to be so I've, i think we'll probably see the same for savers ads and uh 
also just bigger loans being taken out. So I saw some big ones today, and I, I think there's been a couple like you know moderate sized ones, but obviously like uh, no, no one's entering in with any kind of significant size just because of the amount of fees you got to pay. Yeah, I saw a pretty decent ETH one today. That was that was pretty cool. But yeah, hundred percent. I think that that'll be a huge feature to get bigger size coming in. Yeah, I think somebody told me, and I'm obviously not going to say whom, but somebody told me that they, that they want they want to do like a million dollar loan, and they're waiting for, um, for the streaming swaps integration with lending. Nice. How much? Uh, how much burn is that? <laughs> it's a lot. I mean, it's uh, you know buying a million dollars with it off the market and then burning it. Oh yeah, I was thinking I was thinking a million collateral, so I was thinking I'd have to do the math. But yeah, a million loan—that's pretty easy. Yeah, yeah, it's it's pretty straightforward. I mean, it's I think yeah. I think there's quite a few people I've, I've heard from that who have all voiced the same thing. So they're just waiting on the sidelines, waiting for their opportunity to come in. So the funny thing is that like getting streaming swaps to integrate with savers and with lending is actually it ended up being much more complicated and much more difficult than I originally thought it was going to be. <clears throat> And so there's there's some good amount of like technical kind of struggle in a sense in getting it all, getting it all to work and flow correctly, but uh, I think we should should be able to figure it out eventually. Yeah, what uh, is that? Just like based on like maybe partial fulfillments or like pauses and like accounting for all all those types of scenarios where it's not instant fulfillment. Or like, you know, what actually adds all that complexity? Yeah, I mean, that's part of it. And so whenever, like, um, uh, you don't want to get a situation where you have this, like, partial fulfillment where, like, say you're paying off a loan and then, you know, you get your collateral back, but you only get, like, half your collateral back and half the collateral stays in the loan, for example. If you, if you do that, it, it gets kind of wacky and wonky and, and, like, you know, like, Oh, you already paid it off, but you only got half your collateral. So then, how do you get the rest of it? You pay it off again. Like it doesn't make any sense, and so it just creates these kind of like, kind of a rough scenarios and situations that we just kind of want to avoid. And so, the best way to do that is to avoid the whole, you know, uh, partial fulfillments. And so, by doing that, we can we can like do things like changing the rules, like the laws around synthetics and how they work, and changing the laws around like TVL caps and changing some some like these things. It's not nothing significant or, or like crazy or even in my opinion doesn't even really need much of an ADR or even a community vote because it's insignificant enough that it doesn't really make a difference but it just adds a lot of like scenarios you got to compute for or tally for but it wasn't just that like once I got into the actual source code to code it out there's like the way that the the, the places where the code is you need to change they're not like all in the same place and the, the way that kind of like they the way they interact with each other it, it kind of gives you a limited I'm, I'm kind of i'm doing a terrible job explaining this but like it's a limited resources like limited information uh it just becomes really kind of like kind of kludgy and kind of not quite smooth and so to get it all to be smooth was just it's just being more more difficult and, and than i would have would have guessed walking into it Is that lending specifically or similar stuff on, on savers? Uh, it, I think it's lending specifically. Um, lending's more complicated because there's multiple uh, stream, streams going on. Like there's a streaming swap to enter your collateral and then there's a streaming swap to get your debt. Or vice versa, you stream swap to pay back your debt and stream swap to get back your collateral. 
And like all those things are kind of like, you know, uh, doing two swaps in a single thing, two streaming swaps like, like tied to each other. And they're not even two, it's like, it's a double, double straight swap. So it's like a four swaps, all kind of daisy chained together with a hook in the middle for the handler, the lone handler logic. And then it's just like a lot of kind of like um, things happening that we haven't had needed to do something this complicated. And so it just created, you know, uh, some, some difficulty. I think we'll be able to fix it. I think we'll be able to get a f to figure it out. And I'm kind of waiting for some other code to merge and blah, 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 to unblock me if we continue that work. But like, it's just, it's just being a little more in the pain in the ass than I would have would have thought. That would, would have taken me just a couple hours to do it. And I am spending it like more than a day and, and it's still not quite right. Gotcha. Yeah, so how's everything else been around uh, the lending launch? Any, anything that um, has caught your guys' attention on, on lending, like tweaks that need to be made or just like any, uh, any little things around that? Yeah, there's, there's one thing that, of, of tweaks that need to be made. So um, one of the attributes of the configuration of lending, one thing we, we talked about when we talked about the parameters of how lending is launched, like what are the configurations? And one of them kind of like tells the, the derived asset virtual pools of how sensitive they are to volatility, right? So how fast does the pool become shallow relative to the amount of volume passing through the layer one counterpart? And so we started off initially at like a, a value and the, the value, value doesn't matter, but the value started off as like 60%. And at that time, 60% was the correct number, right? It, it, it gave you the correct behavior that we wanted to do, the correct amount of sensitivity. But then what happened was we launched streaming swaps. And streaming swaps obviously created a lot more volume in the network, which is obviously a good thing. But now the 60% value was like, you know, too small. It should, it should be larger. So that basically made, because it was overly sensitive to the volume of the network pools, like when it didn't need to be, it just got more trade volume because we introduced, you know, a fundamentally changing feature like streaming swaps. And so that kind of, configuration uh i've always kind of seen as even when like i was planning and coding and all these things i've always kind of seen as like kind of like a temporary holding ground that's like a, a reasonable first stab you know what i mean like a reasonable first way of going at it but i always kind of recognize that like well different pools are going to have different trade volume and different numbers are going to be relative to different pools and da, 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 like all this kind of stuff and then how does it account for you know, moving into a bull market, moving into a bear market and just naturally having more trade volume or less trade volume, or maybe there's just like, you know, big news today or whatever, blah, blah, blah. And how did, the, how did we, how does the sensitivity adjust itself or should it adjust itself to these kinds of events? And so that, so there's been some work around um, devising some new math that instead of configuring this, this value to be some number like 60% or whatever, just we, we configure a mathematical equation that determines what the value should be on a per pool basis. And it looks over the last two weeks of, of, of trade volume to, to determine what that, how sensitive it should be. Like what is, what is the actual trade volume we see of this particular pool over the last two weeks? And using that information, we can kind of tell the network how sensitive it should be to, to, for unusual you know, traffic or something like this. And so you can kind of think of, if anybody's familiar with like the, the difficulty system in uh, Bitcoin mining, like in Bitcoin mining, every two weeks, the network kind of redefines what the 
uh, complexity or the difficulty rating of like what they need to hash out. And in, in reality, that's like a, it just, a, a, uh, it's, it's a number, literally, a, 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 actually, what number coded into 64 characters, but like, uh, it changes based upon how many people are, are mining, right? So the more hash rate, the more CPUs that are mining Bitcoin, every kind of couple weeks, Bitcoin kind of observes this and then makes it the difficulty more difficult or easy, depending upon which direction that the, the hash rate goes. And it does that to maintain that, that every block is effectively 10 minutes, because if we didn't do this, as you add more hash rate, Bitcoin, this block wouldn't be 10 minutes, it'd be 10 minutes, it'd be nine minutes, it'd be eight minutes, because we're increasing the amount of number of CPUs and computational power. But you want to keep more of a static, estimated, you know, soft 10 minutes. And so it recalculates its, its mind difficulty every kind of couple of weeks to kind of maintain that two week kind of time, time frame. And so when you suddenly see a sudden change in, in the hash rate of Bitcoin, like we saw when China banded, banded, uh, banned uh, mining in three of its provinces, we saw the hash rate of Bitcoin because they just dropped by like over 50%. And now all of a sudden blocks were not no longer 10 minutes. They were now you know 15 or 20 minutes or something like this. And so it eventually kind of fixed itself after two weeks, but it, it kind of has this sensitivity to the hash rate of Bitcoin. And so we are effectively doing something similar, but instead of looking at the hash rate of a coin or a network, whatever, we're looking at the volume of a particular pool and then we're adjusting that kind of sensitivity to make it more difficult or more easy, depending upon, you know, how that changes. So if you do have a, a, a crazy day and, you know, the SEC announces that they just did a Bitcoin ETF and trade volume increases like crazy amount, everybody's buying Bitcoin or whatever, right? You don't, you don't want that sensitivity to be like immediate because that, maybe that's an attack actually. Maybe it's something, you know, natural, who knows? You want them to be kind of like delayed. And so the number of that I've, I thought was a reasonable first stab at would be effectively two weeks. We can know at any two week time, time frame, you know, what is the reasonable amount of tra trade volume we'll see in this particular pool. We can look averaging it out or take the median out over the last two weeks. So that's one configuration change that I'd like to see made at some point in the future, if that makes sense. Yep, for sure. So we got streaming swaps and we have the, um, so is it, what do you, what do you call this exactly? Like, it's, it's not really a difficulty adjustment, but it's a similar concept. Yeah. The, the Mimir is called the max anchor slip. I think that's what max pool anchor slip or something like this. Yeah. It's just, it, it's called the max anchor slip, I guess. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Cool, man. So yeah, lending is just chugging along. Yeah, I don't think there's anything else really like everything else has been pretty smooth, pretty smooth. Like there were a few bugs we kind of fixed in the last, in the first couple of weeks, minor bugs around the quotes on point and this kind of stuff, nothing too crazy. Uh, and I think in about two more weeks or one week or two weeks, whatever it is, that the the first loans will be able to, to close their, their loans. Right, because there's a 30-day uh, minimum maturity of a loan before it can be closed. So it'll be really fascinating to see what happens there. Like, are our loans can be closed? Are they going to stay open? Like, what percentage of them got got closed? You know, this kind of information, and we can kind of see uh, how that affects the the uh, protocol. Yeah, I think that'll inspire more trust too. Just to like have spectators see like the system work in both directions. Uh, 
lets it prove itself. So that, yeah, it'd be cool to see some close. I don't know why too many would close right away, but like, I'm sure some will just out of like, if nothing more than to, to test it out. Yeah. I mean, if you look at the price of Bitcoin or the price of ETH at the time, like 30 days ago to where it is now, I, I can't remember what time I had with the actual price differences, but it's, as it doesn't feel like it's really shifted all that much. So there probably isn't really a lot of pressure uh, for people to close their loans or a reason to close their loans. Unless you just you're just like kicking the tires and you just want to kind of open a loan and then close it just to kind of get a get a sense of it. Yep, for sure. So uh, other than that, um, BSC launch, which should be happening like pretty pretty imminently. Uh, so what what's the old process around this? So the next turn, the the vaults get created and then uh, the launch actually gets kicked off probably like this weekendish. Uh, yeah, pretty much. We have to wait for a churn so that all, everything can be created cor correctly and all that kind of stuff, which I think is already um, configured to go, if I'm not mistaken, if I remember, if I remember correctly. And then once that happens, uh, somebody has to create the pool, which I'm assuming that'll be the treasury or maybe, maybe some random person in the community, no matter who. And then we're off to the races and people can start adding liquidity and you know start trading and all that kind of stuff. Cool. So we just need to wait for the next turn for the vault to be created. So I, I, I kind of forget how the whole process goes for the, the new chains and, and vaults and stuff like that. I wasn't sure if we needed the, the next uh, the next update or not for that to happen. But I, I think it should just um, should just happen on the next turn then, which should be tomorrow, perhaps two days. Yes, I, th I think so. But I have to look at, look at my notes to be sure. Because it's been a while since we've actually had a chain, to be honest. It's true. The last one we added was, uh, what, AVAX? AVAX, I think, yeah. A year ago? Yeah. I'm very fascinated to see wow. how BSC works, like, in terms of, like, adoption, because on the one hand, you have a chain that's, like, economically, it's very large, right? It's, like, the second largest chain economically, you know, for, like, well, I guess third, you could call it, if you can include Bitcoin, but, like, from a EVM perspective, it's the second largest, right, by, by a good margin, too. And so you would naturally think that a chain with a lot of, you know, volume and trades and liquidity, all that kind of stuff would be a good one to add. And in theory, I guess it could be, but like, I, we, I think we, what I've recognized through the, through adding many chains over the last couple of years or a few chains more accurately, it's like, it, it, just because something is an economic, you know, powerhouse doesn't mean necessarily mean that any liquidity is coming towards ThorChain. And it's always super helpful to have members of that community come forward and, and, you know, do some cross marketing and getting the people behind the other project to kind of tell their community about it and get them, get them hyped for it. And get our community hyped on their project and, and do it more together. And like, that's partially why Terra was so successful as a, as a chain that we launched and had wide adoption. We had, you know, hundred million in the pools, you know, of the Terra pools in total, I think it was. And in a relatively short period of time is because of that kind of working together. Versus when we add something like Doge or we add something like AVAX or we add something like, you know, BSC and there's not really much cross-pollination happening, you know, between the two uh, ecosystems, they tend to be a little bit more stale. But I think the argument for BSC might be that the Trust Wallet's already integrated with us. And so Trust Wallet's probably one of the biggest wallets for BS, BSC. And so once they integrate 
uh, BSC on their side to allow swaps and trades and such. Maybe that'll be enough. That's all we need. Yeah, I definitely think in a perfect world, the cross-pollination is obviously key. But on the other side, like just looking at uh, DEX volume by chain on DeFi Llama, I mean, BSC is number two to Ethereum. So that's pretty freaking huge. And then, um, you know, coming out with like DEXAG right out the gate on that. Um, and already, like you said, having like Trust Wallet already having BSC ties and all of that. So I'm pretty excited about it. I think it could be hopefully, you know, bigger than let's say AVAX. Not that that's doesn't have any potential for the future, but like hopefully it comes out the gate stronger. Yeah, it, it might. It's kind of hard to tell, right? It's almost almost possible to predict these kind of things. But the problem, well, one of the things we have to be concerned about is that like AVAX as a chain is not that complicated in terms of its like computation resources. BSC is actually quite large. Like each each of these things are like lots of like you need like eight or ten terabytes of space, which is a lot. Number of CPUs, number of like memories is a lot, and it's probably about a thousand dollars per month to run one of these full nodes for BSC, which is by far the most expensive one that we have currently. <clears throat> and so there's additional cost to the operators to to run that thing. And now that Rune's price is is better than it was when we were talking about BSC. Like last time we talked about BSC, I think we were around a dollar. A little under a dollar and so we would have needed the trade volume of the bnb chain we could, the current bnb chain, which is like the third largest contributing economically to the to thor chain we would need to be about the same um trade volume to in order to generate enough revenue to to just you know to just make it neutral for the operators and the bnb chain you know in terms of depth it was you know, rel- relatively deep to the other chains other pools and chains in the network so we didn't even have the space to get the BSC pools to be deep enough to support large enough trades. Now that's kind of changed somewhat with streaming swaps, right? Now that we have that launch, it kind of changes the equation to some degree. But um, if we can't, I'm hoping that, that BSC will surpass BNB in terms of trade volume and pool depth. I think that's my, my hope, but it's, we won't really know until, until we wait and see. Yeah, the uh, Is- biggest the, b- the biggest thing there definitely being trust wallet and like I, I like I, I do think it has more more potential than something like Avax or Atom where there really wasn't any like there was nothing there to really drive any organic volume from like actual users on uh, those networks and um, you know we we do already have Binance Beacon Chain and like we're we're really the only venue for Bet to. Uh, assets pretty much anywhere and doing quite a bit of volume with that um so yeah man we're just gonna have to see what happens really and uh yeah it's gonna be uh, a nice new chain to have uh, i hope and uh, <laughs> I, I don't know I, I i do think that um we'll get more but like i don't know what we're gonna just have to see i mean there's really no uh um no way to just like like just predict what'll what'll happen so so, Kyle, and also Thoreau, if you could just magically have a wand and add any chain to the network, what would you choose? I would actually, uh, some might disagree with this, but I, and maybe now is not the right time for it, but 
I think Solana will be important. And I think Solana is very detached because it's like not just another EVM and all of that. So I find that just in my own personal, you know, like using of, of Thorchain, using occasionally bridges and very avoidantly using centralized exchanges. That's where I get stuck all the time is like trying to go from uh, like anything Thorchain supports to random tokens on Solana. I'm st- I get stuck there all the time and I really hate using like I just every time I try to use those bridges, I'm just like, oh, my God, this is like the worst experience ever. And I'm just going to give up. So that would actually be my vote. Yeah, if I, if I could wave the one, I mean, I got two. definitely Solana. I'm totally agreeing with that, um, with that take. And hopefully that could happen with like a light client or something like that. I, I, I think Pluto said before there's some potential there, but I, we'll have to see. I, I think we'll need to update TSS for that as well. Right, Chad? So. That, yes. that would seem to be a ways out. Well, uh, okay. So th- maybe there's three then. Um, there's also obviously like Monero and like ring signatures, which is like, you know, completely like, like something that n- no one else can do, which is obviously like big in its own right. And then third being uh, base. Coinbase is, um, you know, optimism stack L2 on, on Ethereum. I, I do see Coinbase just pulling in a lot of liquidity and obviously um, like we're like, we want to be wherever the liquidity is. And we are, we like, we already have um, not, not, not connections, but you know, we're, we're like, we, we have a lot of finance liquidity. We could pull in a lot of Coinbase liquidity as well. And we can kind of be this like middle connective layer between all these different, um, different stacks of like really where the liquidity is. Um, and that, that's kind of where I see, Thorchain sitting. So it's like, if we did have like a Ethereum L2, I mean, base seems like a, a top contender, um, just just because of the amount of activity and liquidity it can be and just being able to um, be this like DeFi in the middle of all of the uh, more, more centralized exchanges and being like a layer of connected tissue there. What do you guys think about those choices? Well, uh, I'll break them each down. So for Solana, it's an interesting one for sure. And it's a very complicated one. Um, I think I think you mentioned it's an EDDSA um, system, uh, So, which we don't actually support the EDDSA yet on the social signatures yet, which is something I would like to remedy. But it's also very, like those nodes are massive, like super, like 256 gigabytes of RAM, like just ultra massive. So it would be quite a lot of work for not just for the for the devs, but also for the node operators to put together the resources, especially now that we have, you know, a good amount of the nodes are now on bare metal, which is great. But to get their nodes to expand to support something like Solana would be, you know, quite a, mo- a large amount of time and effort and money for the nodes to do so. So they definitely need a large amount of time to, to prepare themselves. On the other hand, like, um, I, I mean, I had some, uh, common friends with Anatoly, and so maybe I can arrange a sort of meeting, and maybe I'll try to do that just for the giggles of it, and just to kind of get like a temperature read from Anatoly about how how open are they to interfacing with Thorchain, because like they do have their bridging system, like like uh, um, Chad was talking about, and and I feel like with Avax they have their own bridging system as well, and they're pretty content with it, even though 
I can make valid arguments of why they shouldn't be, but they are quite happy and content with it and, and they may not want to support like a native swaps across chains because they're just, they've doubled down on their own kind of situation with, with the wrapped assets and this kind of thing and their trusted bridges and all this kind of stuff. So I'd be curious to know how open or how interested the Solana community would be. I can talk, I can try to reach out to some people, but like uh, if they're, if they're down and they're like really excited about it, that would, for me, that would be a game changer. Like I would be totally down to doing it myself. We're take a lot of work to get there. We have to make, we have to make some changes to TSS, we make some changes to the infrastructure. Like it would not be a small, amount of work by any stretch. And even as we have to build an entire new chain client, not, not a fork or something else, be a completely new chain client, which would be also a lot of work as well. So it would not be a cheap thing at all. But if Anatoly and the rest of the Solana community is behind it, that would that would you know make it more of a priority in, in my mind. Uh, the second one he said was Monero. I'm totally down. This, this would be my personal number one pick if I can just like wave a magic wand and get it added tomorrow. Monero would be the most valuable in my in my opinion, just because it's to to take this technology, which in my in my opinion is probably the most uh, hardened econ, uh, a, a privacy system that we have in crypto, which I think is that ring that ring signature system that 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 they have that crypto note design would be absolutely huge for the industry to be able to to have privacy on whatever you want on more or less on any asset that you want. That would be such a significant contribution to the space, much more than just bridging value from chain A to chain B, but now just bridging like the interoperability of privacy across multiple chains and assets. Like that would be pretty um, amazing thing, amazing contribution to have. Base on the other hand, like, I don't know, I have mixed feelings about base. Like there are some L2s we can add. Like I think, you know, Polygon is one that comes to mind, for example, a lot of liquidity there. And I know the Polygon team is, has an interest in getting torchain added. So there's a little bit of kind of cross-pollination going on right that, with that one. I don't know how open Coinbase is to having base integrated with them. Like they're pretty tight-lipped, you know, our communications with them in the past has never been all that, um, all that friendly. Not, not like it's, you know, adversarial or anything like this, but just not that, you know, uh, welcoming in some sense. And so I'm not really sure how open they would be to, to integrating with, with us, you know? But I'd be obviously totally open to have that conversation with whomever on the Coinbase side of things. I feel that. Um, I mean, okay, here's, here's a question for the ETH L2 stack. So ETH L2s are essentially just contracts on the, like on, on the main chain that then roll up and then settle on, on the main chain, right? Why is it that you can't just create some kind of like generic implementation that can just like basically like use what we already have in running all of the Ethereum daemons and basically like create a like be, be able to um, deposit into those L2s without actually having to implement the L2 itself because it's essentially just a roll up. It, it, it's you're just rolling up into the L1, so it's like. Um, I'm just wondering, wondering why you can't just go the opposite way and like like we already have the L1 implementation, so why can't we use that to um, like be able to support you know every single ETH L2 today? Well, I think you can, right? You can do like effectively using DEX aggregation to to, to swap to the layer one and then using DEX aggregation to push into the layer two, um, but 
the, the negative of going that approach or, is that you're, you're doing an extra hop of, of transactions. You're adding more time and you're adding more cost to it. Cause you have to make that ETH transaction first, which is obviously very you know expensive. And then you have to wait for it to be broadcast to the layer two through some bridging mechanism, which maybe that's, um, you know, something like, uh, um, what's the name of that? Uh, ETH, uh, EVM bridging tech. I'm blanking on the name right now. My brain's not working. But uh, you could do that. You could totally do that. And that's actually like kind of an easy and low-hanging fruit way of doing that is just kind of using some other bridge to bridge, right? But if we do it directly, uh, the benefit is that it, it's like less transactions, simpler, faster, that kind of thing. But the, the negative of going, of going directly to the L2 is that now you have to have our own pool and our own liquidity and, our own, and increase the security and we only have so much security in the network and like, you know, how do we want to like allocate that security? So it's just like, if we, if we create an L2 for, you know, base or whatever it might be, then like we also have to have, a, have that deep pools as well. And where's that, where's that security going to come from? What other things are taking away from in a matter of speaking? So it's just like, there's, there's definitely a, a, a give and take here, right? A pros and a cons. And I don't think it's clear cut, at least not in my view, people are welcome to argue with me. But it's not clear cut which one of those is actually a good design or a bad design. It's just, you know, pros and cons. Yeah. Also, um, it's something else I've been thinking about with whereas like new chains. So now that we have lending, which is essentially like shorting major assets um, that are not not room. Um, I'm wondering if it makes sense to actually implement like some of the largest market cap coins, something like, um, like, like Ripple or something like that, where, because so in, in the past, obviously we want to implement coins that are very, that, like that, that are um, large in market cap and have a high potential for a lot of volume. But now that we have lending, um, we, are essentially taking bets on these coins going down in relation to Rune over a long period of time. So does it make more sense to implement really high market cap coins, something yeah, like, like, like a Ripple, like, you know, name whatever else in the, in the top five, top, top 10. Um, does it make more sense to, to do that, even though there might not be like some kind of broad community support for that? What are your thoughts on that? Well, the um, how how lending cap system works today is that it's it's capped on a per pool basis, and how how large that cap is is relative to the depth of the pools. So, if we were to add Ripple tomorrow, let's just say, and it just never got much depth to it, right? It just kind of stays a shallow pool. Then it's not really going to contribute that much value to the protocol, just because the amount of you know Ripple loans that will go out is relatively small. So you're, there's not really much of an upside and there's not really much of a downside either that can really push the success of lending or the protocol itself in any particular direction. Like, so gonna, we're not going to see that the protocol collapse because of Ripple. We're not going to see it, you know, go to $100 billion either, right? So what you, I think what you, in terms of like lending, you want, uh, at least in the, in the current moment, it makes sense to stay with higher cap assets to start. But we should start ex also experimenting with lower market cap assets because that's, they may sound like they're more risky, and in some sense they are. But there could be some aspects to market psychology and behavior 
that it's actually more beneficial to use those assets over other ones. So for example, uh, say you were to add a, a new, you know, shitcoin two, right? It's just called, I'm, I'm gonna just call it shitcoin two. The odds that shitcoin two is gonna go to, you know, to a trillion dollar market cap or a hundred million dollar market cap is relatively small because most coins never get to a hundred million dollar market cap. They stay in the, you know, smaller ranges and so forth and so on. And so they, it's never gonna grow for the fast, vast majority of these kind of smaller market cap assets. They don't really go for pretty much and 97 or 98% of them are gonna go to zero. And if they go to zero, that's the best case scenario for the protocol. We can benefit effectively just by saying, you know what, 97%, percent of crypto is gonna fail and go to zero and we can profit from that effectively. As a, as a protocol, we can profit from, from that scenario. The, the kind of the more bearish case of this is that, you know, this uh, small market cap asset goes really well. And if it does get to $100 million, it does get to a half a billion or whatever the market cap might be, in which case that could be potentially bad for the protocol. But then it also comes in this, this place of like, well, what is the behavior of people, right? And this is kind of an interesting um, debate. And, and I'd, I'd like to see the data as we kind of find out over the coming, you know, six to seven months or so. But like, if you are a situation where your collateral of shitcoin too is, is pumping, it's gone to the moon, it's, you know, it's 50x in the last three months or something crazy like this, you effectively have two options. Now you can either close your loan, get back your, your, your shitcoin two token and take profits, right? Sell some in the market, into stables or Bitcoin or whatever you want to do, right? And some people might do that. The other option is that you close the loan and then you reopen the loan with the same collateral, in which case you get more a higher amount of debt. So it's in a sense like you start off with a thousand dollars in debt to the start of your situation, then we fifty x the uh, the um, the price of the shitcoin two uh, asset, and now instead of going a thousand dollars, if you close it and reopen, it, you now got fifty thousand dollars in your in your pocket, assuming that the CR is the same as it was before, which probably isn't, but but still like. Do you go for, for the free cash and go for that 50,000 in debt and then use that 50,000 to buy more shitcoin too to kind of like leverage up your position on shitcoin too because you think it's going to go to the moon, quote unquote? Or are you a smart trader and are you going to, you know, DCA out, right? Or, or take profits of the thing. So like, like you can make arguments in either direction and I know people will do both, right? Obviously. The question is, where does the cat bet actually do? Is it as the capital kind of like taking profits, or is most of the capital kind of riding to the moon, right? And in this industry, most people are going to ride to the moon, but also people who are smart and and kind of take profits are probably have a higher amount of capital in their pockets, right? Think of you like your TBRs, for example, right? That 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 kind of that kind of trader has a lot more money in his pocket, so he has much more capital. So it's just like more people will probably kind of like just take the free take the free money option and ride to the moon or ride to the ride to zero or whatever, but the smart people will probably have more capital in their pockets to be able and have a larger kind of weight behind them, and so we don't really know the answer to this question. We can hypothecate all we want, but I'm very fascinated to see what the actual market behavior is uh, over the next like six plus months. What would be an example of when you think like a, a a newer or smaller coin would actually be added as a new chain? Because like over the last few years, generally the idea has been 
don't add new stuff like wait and kind of add like the the ogs add like the the things that have kind of proven themselves so are you kind of thinking like oh you know hypothetically next bull run you know there's some hot l1 that hasn't even been created yet we don't even know what it is yet and maybe that makes sense to to add like on a relatively short notice is, is that kind of what you're thinking like almost like how Terra was um like Terra came out pretty quick and there was so much of a push for it that it got added you know on relative short notice in the grand scheme of things yeah that's a good question i think um there's always gonna be pressure from the community to add the new hotness thing and whether that's solana or that's Terra, whether it's avax whether it's some new thing coming out uh was it called SEI, SEI, or whatever? Like, this is always going to be some some new hotness that everybody thinks is like the next big thing, crypto. And majority of times, it's nowhere close to that. And so, but it's just up to the community to decide which ones they do and don't want to add. My my general feeling, personally, and for most cases, is like let it survive a a, a full cycle, a bull, a bull market and a bear market. And if it's still around and there's still demand, you know, for it, then. I say go for it, but at that point, the market cap of what of that asset will probably be, you know, quite won't be that small of a market cap to be honest. Right by that point, it's not really small. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, I just don't see it happening happening personally. Like looking at how long it even takes to get BSC online, which is like, like that boat was what. Was it was it was it a year ago? <laughs> Might have been over a year ago at this point. Like I, I just don't see it ever happening where we start going for like these, uh, you know, brand, like shiny brand new chains. At least at like the current pace of things. Uh, and obviously that's because like there's so many other priorities. And may, maybe that changes one day where it's like, all right, all the major features are shipped, rossified, and now it's just like, oh well, what chains do we add? Yeah, I mean, that also was the economics for node operators during a bear market, right? Because before that, you know, there were talks of like 20 chains in one year sort of thing, right? So who knows, like, maybe there's a time where it makes sense to to go into back to chain launching season. We could add like non-gas assets, like, you know, for example, maybe there's a push to add like GMX, right? As a open loans for GMX. Theoretically, we could do this whether we want to or not is obviously a debatable topic, but it doesn't have to be a new chain. It could just be a new asset within an existing chain too. Right. Right. Yeah. For the lending perspective, especially or savers Right. Um, for swaps, it's less interesting just if there's like already relatively straightforward paths to getting there. Yep. Yep. Just whilst at the start of that, I thought when um, when you add another pool, whether it's the shitcoin or not, the um, the depth or the, or the cap for lending is is based proportionally on the depth of the pool. So obviously, a new pool um, that's not you know it's going to be quite lower. That the actual um, depth of that is going to be much lower than say the Bitcoin pool. So the cap is going to be then proportional to the depth of the pool. So the Bitcoin cap is going to be much higher than, say, the new shitcoin pool that has low liquidity. That obviously then de-risks that particular um, new pool that's been added to lending. 
when it has got a huge amount of debt compared to, say, the, the Bitcoin the Ethereum pool, which is kind of interesting because then you, the, the Bitcoin Ethereum pool, in a way, because of the high debt, is going to have, in a way, more um, risk to the protocol, but it's a, it's a much more firmer and longer lasting and you can see this stable asset. You know, and the same thing happened with um, impairment loss protection because that's where all of the liability was, particularly in the Bitcoin pool, then the Ethereum pool, not in all the other uh, smaller pools. Yeah. Just, I'd add that point. That's true, but you, if, if there's a lot of hype around a particular uh, chain or asset, then they can get big. I mean, we can't talk about Terra, how fast Terra became a very deep mm. pool. And if that, and if we were to do that, say if say we were to launch Terra, like the Terra equivalent tomorrow or whatever, and it becomes bigger and bigger and bigger, it's gonna it's gonna effectively like kind of vampire attack the other pools in terms of like lending, like the amount of rune of the amount of cap available for Bitcoin and ETH is going to decrease because this new Terra thing, whatever that is, that's growing really hard and fast, is kind of like taking away from those pools and and adding it to the terror system, the terror, this new terror token, whatever the hell it is. So it's kind of an interesting thing to be considered as well, but I doubt we're going to be really talking about this in reality anytime, anytime soon, at least not for a couple of years. That's more or less what my question was going to be, Chad. And thanks again for hosting these events. That was great. Um, it seems that in the past it's kind of been most successful to kind of launch features during bear markets and we start uh, adding more coins more during bulls when there's a lot more liquidity due to due to the room price uh, being a little bit higher. Um, and so I'm just wondering, is this kind of more of a thought experiment or are we seriously talking about adding more chains this quickly? I think the BSC integration is fantastic, but I really do love all the features we've been talking about, perps. Uh, continuing uh, streaming swaps and lending and things like that. So just kind of wondering if this is more of a thought experiment or if, uh, I guess, how, how close to real is this? I mean, in my viewpoint, in my two cents, it's more of a thought experiment than anything else. There's not really a strong push to add additional chains after BSC. And I think the reason why we're even talking about it now is just because of, you know, a, a vote that took place a year ago, whatever the hell the number was. Um, it's not really great to add new chains during the bear markets, as you kind of mentioned a moment ago. And I think this time is probably better suited for focusing on core functionality and, and kind of ironing out the, the bugs or the rough edges of, you know, new features like streaming swaps or lending and this kind of thing. So that when we get to the bull market, you know, we have all these, you know, powerful new features that, you know, can really contribute a lot of significant, significant value to the, to the industry. And they're just kind of ready to go, and they already can already battle hardened to some degree, and kind of have a good faith that they're that they're pretty pretty strong, you know, ironclad for the most part. So it's just, so I think for right now, over the next six months or so, I think the focus is really more on uh, major core features and and not so much new chains. But uh, that's just my two cents, and my two cents is not reality. So uh, people are welcome to debate and, and advocate for what they want to see happen. Yeah, we'll definitely be up to the community, but I, I, I tend to agree with uh, your thought process. So thank you very much. What would your answer be for the magic wand question, Fox? Oh, that's a hard one. Um, honestly, I th if you, I mean, yeah, it would probably be a, a Haven, a Monero, something privacy focused, but 
after that, I really do think in a long enough time frame, having some of our friendly forks start experimenting with, with other coins and, you know, letting fortune really harden. Um, eventually, there will come a time where there doesn't have to be a next chain or at least wait until a, another chain has really proven itself. So I'm not rushing into anything personally, but yeah, definitely up to the community. Yeah, I think I've totally agreed with that. Um, just core core functionality comes before new chains because like we already have the biggest, and I definitely think the BSC launch will be kind of the moment where we can determine whether it is really worth the effort to launch new chains or not. Because uh, like I, I think a lot of us can agree this is like the best shot at like a new chain. Obviously, like barring like shiny new things like. Um, like a Monero, which is like a, a completely different type of like new chain. But this is, um, I, I think most people would agree that it's the it's the best shot at like a generic chain implementation that could be successful. So if it's not successful, then I think um, that that'll definitely show itself. Uh, and it, it would result in, you know, not really any pushes for new chains, which which has already been the case for the past year. Like, you know, no one's really been clamoring to add new chains besides BSC. So it, it'll definitely, um, like, whatever the result of the experiment is, uh, I think it'll be clear, like, whether it's, whether it was actually worth it to add the new chains or whether it's like, all right, well, we should have just, like, stuck without it and we would have been fine. Yeah, I mean, I think I generally agree. It, unless a chain is you know, the strong support from that chain to add, be added to the Thor chain, that's to me like the main indicator whether or not I'd be interested in adding that particular chain. Even if it's a smaller chain like Dash or like Radix or something like this, like if that community is like dead behind it, then I'm more open to it at that time. And the exception I would say is Monero. And I reason why that's an exception is because we're not we're adding most chains to add more liquidity and more, you know, trade volume and this kind of thing, which is obviously good. But for Monero, it's less about kind of like the economic contribution to the network. And it's more about, at least in my mind, it's more about adding the functionality of privacy to the network, which I'm, which I'm totally down for. And, and then the whole thing with Twitter cash, like, whatever, keep, keep shipping. Cool, cool. Any uh, other major topics that you guys want to cover today? I think the the next major feature that is that is fairly close, um, which will be the following release, probably in version one twenty two, maybe one twenty three. It might get pushed back, but in one twenty two is this concept of memoless transactions, which I think I'm getting more and more bullish on. I think it was an interesting idea to start with, but I think the more I think about it, the more I kind of start to like it more and more. And allowing memoless transactions will just open up this network to be accessible by so many more people. I'm very fascinated to see what happens with that. So how does that work exactly? Like, is the interface sending, like, a separate transaction with the instructions to ThorChain on behalf of a memoless inbound? Is that how it works? Yeah, so the, the interface... Um, like Thorsop could do this or somebody else could do this, but like the interface would broadcast a transaction on ThorChain and then say, hey, here's a memo. Um, this, is, this is the actual memo and, and the inbound 
um, it's coming from Bitcoin, as I say, like it's the incoming chain is Bitcoin. And so the network will then assign some sort of like numerical value, like a five digit numerical value that is kind of like a reference code for that particular um, chain for that particular like memo. And so when you sign and broadcast your transaction from your wallet, you don't need a memo at all. You just send some Bitcoin to that, to the one of the Asgard vaults and just make sure that that five digit code is like the end of your, of your, um, of your, uh, your amount that you're sending to the network. So if you want to send one Bitcoin, you wouldn't send exactly one Bitcoin. You said, you know, 1.000, um, 1.0015723 or something, some number, some 1573. Mm. And so it's encoding in the amount what the actual memo is. And then once we receive that kind of amount, we look it up in our little internal storage and say, oh, what's the memo associated with this particular five-digit code? You know, 12753, whatever the number is. Got it. So the, the dust is the code. The dust is the code. And the dust tells the network what the actual intention is. And you can do anything. You can do swapping. You can do a liquidity ad. You can open a loan. You can, like, you know, arbitrarily, you can do any memo you want, right? And so now every wallet can now support uh, ThorChain, which would be, I think, be pretty awesome because then you can somebody. So, go ahead. Uh, so I'm just trying to imagine because because like in I don't know in, in the perfect way I imagine it it would be like oh just send one BTC to this address and you're good to go. But in my understanding, like the only way this would be possible would be like actually send one point zero 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 five three eight four two Bitcoin yes. to this address. Correct. Got it. Correct. It's actually pretty easy because all you'd have to do is generate a QR code that just um, that, that just encodes that in, in it, and it'll just automatically open up your wallet and queue up a send to the Thorchain inbound address. And just all you got to do is press send after that. Right. Yeah. I mean, it, it'll it'll you can easily create a really simple and very clean UI where you just you just go to some web page, you say, "Hey, I got some Bitcoin, and I want USDT on Ethereum or whatever it is." And then it generates a QR code, scan it, and send. Right? There's no. You can keep it so clean, so simple, so fast, so cheap. It would just be like a godsend. You don't. You don't have to connect your wallet. You don't have to like. You can make the UI so dumb simple with no options, no advanced anything. It's just like, just for like clean, fast, simple execution. Done, done, done. And that it doesn't just works. You know. Um, but if your if your wallet doesn't support like a QR code, like you know, like Ledger, for example. Uh, you can always just, it'll display underneath the QR code, like, oh, copy and paste this, this, uh, Bitcoin, this Bitcoin address and this amount and just, just don't change any of this stuff. Just copy and paste it and you'll be fine. Yeah, it's really interesting. I'm still getting my head around this idea and like thinking through all the different ways of kind of packaging it up but it's really fascinating yeah i was talking to thorchain bull about building a ui that basically does this to just to garner as much support and trade volume to the network as possible by making a very simple dumb ui that you can just easily trade so fast and so cheap but the community i, I got some feedback from the community that they they some people feel and i'd be interested to hear what would you all on, on the speakership here it would think as well? Because I'm just curious. 
to have an, have an open and honest conversation. There was a, some pushback from the community that that me as a core core dev should not get involved in building any kind of UI whatsoever, and that I should stay I don't know maybe neutral is the right word, or whatever. Uh, what do you guys think? Yeah, um, that was a thought that crossed my mind because I I just remember, I believe you or others saying that like that it would be a good idea to like separate keep the the core protocol separate from the the interfaces like that was kind of an idea that was always floating around our space right so i don't know if i have like a personal opinion necessarily but it was more of like surprise just kind of to to hear that like those lines could potentially blur um but yeah i don't know thinking thinking about it like i like, I, I don't know like like your your personal risk comes to mind for sure things like that Yeah, I mean, I, I think you should you should just do what what you want, Chad. Like, I, I like I don't think that there's really any kind of line because it's not like you hold any kind of undue influence over the protocol. You're just a you're just a dev, and you hold the will of the of the nodes in in favor, right? Um, and it, it's not like you're um, creating some kind of canonical interface. It, it just it's just your interface. Like, I, I could make my own interface and and launch it, and that doesn't really change change anything right you still have to garner adoption you have to provide support and um it's no small task to to do um but obviously yeah, yeah like you you really should take your own personal risk into consideration because front ends are the most likely to you know be targets of uh you know some kind of regulatory action or um, even just providing a bad user experience, like some kind of bug that loses users' funds, like, you know, you don't want to be responsible for, for something like that. Um, so, yeah, those are just, those are just my two cents. Um, you just, you know, do what you're going to do, but just be, uh, be, be careful. I just think it depends on how you label it. Um, if you just have an independent, I don't think it'll be a problem. But if you say... Blockchain's official interface is probably not the best, which I'm sure you won't do. No. As got exports. Sorry, go on. No, go ahead. Sorry, I interrupted you. Well, so AsgardX, uh, I think Asgard.exchange was the official one, and then AsgardX as well for MCCN launch. But that's now, well, it's kind of like half separated, but, you know, quite official, unofficial, and now it's separated as well. So if you have something like that that's separated, it's got some different branding, labeling. Um, I don't think it's. I think it's fine. And then you know, you, you support that. You could say you support the the development of that. I guess you support the development of all interfaces in a way, or the, you know, directly as well through providing assistance on how they get built, even though you're not you know directly on the team. So I don't, I don't think there's any issue with it. It's just just being smart about how it gets done. Yeah, for for sure, it wouldn't be uh, as a. Uh... Um, Kyle said, like, it wouldn't become a canonical UI, like the official UI of Thorchain or anything like this. It would just be independent UI that I'm in, would independently be launching and, you know, and that kind of thing. And it wouldn't even, I probably wouldn't even seek um, a treasury funds to, to support it. Like, like we, we've used a treasury in the past to, to help fund the development and building of AskRx and, and ThorSwap in the early days and, and a bunch of other things. And it's just a natural thing that happened, but maybe in the interest of, of not getting too conflicted or having, you know, the wires kind of crossed in a sense, I'd, I'd be fine with just funding it myself and 
not seeking uh, treasury funds. It seems in general, interfaces have their own token to allow for like the incentives to fund the development, right? So in my mind, the only way for this to work is to have the developers already be incentivized by Rune itself, right? Which mm. I think that's why it puts you in like a unique situation. Not completely unique, but there are there are few potential teams that could pull it off just by just by kind of like their bet on Rune itself rather than having like an interface that charges a fee and then that having like, you know, community ownership and, and, and such like, like ThorSwap as an example. Yeah. And I think like something like this in my mind, it's just, I would look at it as kind of like a weekend project in a sense, like just a fast build, easy build, clean, simple, no bells and whistles, just fast, easy, cheap trading. And so because of that, it would never really be a competitor against like ThorSwap or whatever, because ThorSwap has a much, will be much more polished, much more featureful, like, and actually require a, a dev team that maintains and fixes and blah, 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 and all these things and adds new features and functionality and all these things. And for me, this wouldn't be that. It would just be a super clean, super fast, super cheap UI, in and out, done. And it wouldn't require much maintenance or upkeep or or even a, a, a dev team at all outside of just the initial construction of it, you know? Yeah, I mean, the, the other thing I would consider is that we don't really need more UIs for, like, we don't need more brand new UIs for, for ThorChain. Like, we, there, there's definitely plenty of, and, and not that you can't innovate or whatever, but, um, you know, there, there's there, there's a core community. That, there's people that use ThorSwap. There's people that use Shapeshift. There's, there's people that use Trust Wallet. And um, each has, like, their own users. And... Um, like we we don't, in my opinion, we don't really need new like brand new interfaces. You're not because you're not creating um, net new users that way. Um, like the the real value add is getting existing interfaces that have a lot of users and funneling volume through that. So it's like essentially by creating like a brand new interface is just like reallocating existing users from like one interface and saying like, Oh, well I can pay uh, less fees on, on chat swap. So I'm just going to do that instead of supporting uh, Thor swap or, you know, giving a donation to shapeshift or, or something like that in the process. So like, I, I, I do totally understand like, you know, what it is, what it is you're, you're, you're trying to build, but like also just like thinking about like what the actual value add is for the, um, um, for the ecosystem is is important too. Like we already have like an, an Asgard X, which has low fees, you know, completely open source. And we already have all these really great community built interfaces too. So just an, another thing to consider. Yeah, I, I think my motivation and Third Chain Bowl's motivation to, to do something like this is just to create a super easy and cheap UI, right? So people can trade very cheaply if they want to or not take out you know um, a bunch of basis points from their trade like just and the reason why we, we like the idea of that is because if you do that then the trades become even cheaper which in theory should make the volume increase which i think both torchina and Bolin and myself are not really interested or even attempting to to make any money from something like this it's just it's just there to help garner more uh volume into the network itself right. but, but who does that undercut it undercuts community uis like 
like Thor swap, right. like shape, like shape shift, like et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, but that's just like to me. That's like that's just the free market doing what the free market does, right? It is, but again, it can only be done by people with fat rune bags, <laughs> right? Well, no, I, I wouldn't agree with that because I, I think in this in this particular instance with this kind of UI because it's so simple and clean and, and non-complex and non-featureful and all these things you don't actually need to fund it because you can right it can be like it can be like a um like a public good essentially yeah public that's exactly what it is it's just public good Thorswap, because what, what it's trying to do is create this really advanced swapping in- interface where you've got like dex aggregation and you've got all these functionalities and like you can do a streaming swap or not a streaming swap and you can do lending and borrowing and you can do all other, which is all those things are like awesome. And Thorstep does a, a great job of that. This is just more like um, clean and simple done out the door. And then it's, and then it's just basically going to be, you know, os- ossified code at that point for the most part, unless there's some sort of uh, backwards incompatible breaking change that occurs at some point in the future of Thorchain, which probably is not going to happen to be honest. And like everything, and everything, all, all the code that I would write, and this, is, this has been true for most of my adult life, whenever possible, is all open source and MIT licensed. And so anybody can take this and, you know, put a new skin on it, a new domain, and, you know, relaunch it under, and then apply a, their own basis point. They would want to apply a 30 basis point to that, then, you know, have at it. It's all free and open source. Did uh, Ayo have some comments? Yeah, sorry, one second. Uh, I'm going to have, uh, it's a completely different, uh, sorry, completely different change of subject. Um, and I'm probably going to have to go after I ask this question. So I'll listen to the response on the uh, recording. But, um, oh, wait, first of all, can you guys hear me? Yep. Okay, great. So, um, yeah, sorry to change the subject. Um, uh, I was just daydreaming the other day, uh, and I just wanted to know if something like this is possible. Um, so uh, it's about ThorChain or Thor likes, you know, so- something else using the the uh, kind of ThorChain security. So basically, I read a tweet the other day that was like, oh, yeah, the, the thing I think of ThorChain as is just uh, uh, solving the decentralized custodial problem. I was like, oh, I agree with that. And then, like, the, maybe the second thing it does is swaps. Um, and, like, you know, it's it's a bunch of liquidity pools that are securely custodied. That's that's kind of, like, one way of looking at it. So I, I was thinking, huh. Uh, so I am a, like, Bitcoin uh, worrier when it comes to the uh, transactions, like, supporting the security over time. And I'm also, like, a Bitcoin worrier when it comes to privacy, and I was saying, huh, if, if these Thor chains or, or Thor likes are, you know, a bunch of liquidity pools and it's the protocol just facilitates transactions and coin joins are just like transactions that are done in a certain way. Is it possible? Like, is it feasible that there could be like some Thor like one day that is this like outside pool vending machine that just says, hey, we'll, we'll mix or we'll hold a a tornado cash where you can get a receipt for you and the, and it's just for bitcoin like is that a feasible thing anyways that was that was my question sorry to change the subject 
Is that feasible? Uh, yes, that is feasible. We could, in theory, build a, a coin drawing to some regard, but you probably couldn't do it with the layer ones. And the reason why that is is because um, you can't obscure the information of like input, inbounds and outbounds of the layer ones, like of the Bitcoin and ETH. It's a little bit easier if it's a, if it's a native asset to Torchain. So if you were to like swap to a synthetic or a derived asset, something like this, and then do a coin join within that, that would probably be easier to execute, uh, in my opinion. But um, coin joins and that kind of stuff is, is very difficult to do. And even if you do it well, it, just, it doesn't give you as much privacy as you would like. Like it would give you enough privacy to obscure a transaction from you know a hot dog stand on the street but it wouldn't probably give you enough protection against like government agencies or like chain analysis companies and this kind of stuff it really requires coin joins are, are, are more valuable the more transaction and volume passing through it and so because Torchain doesn't have enough volume passing through it in this moment it wouldn't be very helpful to be honest with you and that's why that's one of the reasons why i'm kind of more bullish on utilizing something like um, Monero with its rig signatures is that it's, it's in some ways it's, it's kind of like a mixer um, although I don't think it's technically true but it's somewhat similar and and it does it very effectively it does it very well and it does it probably better than anything that I could build to be honest with you and so I, I kind of like we had the conversation as a team very early on years ago like, this is like three four years ago about whether or not we should do privacy and in, in, within Torchain itself and we ended up deciding not to do it, not because we hate privacy or, or anything like that. It's more of like it changes the economics of the network. If you do introduce privacy and then you have these kind of like chaining interactions, which can kind of like remove the privacy aspect to it to some regard because you have to publicly say information, blah, blah, blah. Whereas rig signatures, you don't. And so like it just became abundantly clear that what we're trying to do is is you know cross-chain kind of interactivity and, and pri not so much privacy and if you are going to do privacy you know we just didn't have the right teams at that time to actually do, to do it properly to do it really well uh, i'm not a cryptographer myself for example and instead we would just pull upon other people who are like monero like zcash like you know these kind of characters and that just seemed like a more reasonable and more foolproof uh, way because we don't have to do the work ourselves and we rely on people who are very smart much smarter than myself that who can do that stuff really really well so i don't i don't have a plan in my mind to do any kind of privacy on Torchain. and i say that as somebody who is an advocate for privacy or who appreciates privacy and sees its value but i'm just saying that we should probably not try to reinvent the wheel in, in this particular case because i don't think we can be able to do it very effectively or very well and just utilize something that it does do it really well like tornado cash or uh, Zcash or these kind of things. All right, great, thanks. Oh, I, I, I guess I, I would want to quickly say um, wh whether or not Thorchain would do something like that, I, I was mostly wondering if it's feasible because one of the things, like I said, I worry about is the transaction fee supporting Bitcoin in the future. So I thought, huh, if there's this Thor like on the side that is constantly doing something, you know, constantly doing transactions to mix around. I just thought that that kind of worked well with uh, dealing with privacy and uh, having, you know, transaction fees go up. It's got to go. Thanks. Thanks for your question. 
Real quick, I can't be the only one that thinks uh, that AO sounds like Eric Voorhees. Am I, am I wrong? Uh, didn't cross my mind. But... <laughs> <laughs> this, this is the recording. I, I, think, to, I, I think yeah. you're wrong. I think you're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I'll have to go back and listen while looking at Eric's face. <laughs> I've got a, I've got a question. So, with when you add to Thorchain, the thought about like as a liquidity provider, you send BDC in. If you follow the UTXO, because of churning, it's constantly going to be moving to a new address. You know, every time a churn happens. But if you could withdraw to us, if you withdraw the same amount to the same address that you deposited, but then the game's over because obviously, you know, you've got that back. But if you could withdraw somehow or or in different amounts, then you could have a way of, you could say, breaking the on-chain analysis heuristics because you've got all of these churns, all of these transfers in the middle between when you added and then when you withdraw. Is that something you'd thought of or...? Is it the well, you can't really tr- withdraw to something you didn't add to because you can't prove that you own the address? Um, well, the, the churning aspect in my mind doesn't actually help increase privacy at all because the chain analysis can just like drop that from being considered as part of the complexity. Um, yeah, it, it, it really all depends on the, in the actual inbound and outbound volume that, that the more of that that's happening, the, the basically the more privacy you get. So there's a, there's a correlational relationship there, which I'm not sure if that's linear or exponential or, or what the actual relationship actually is. But um, it is hard to do, and that's why, like, for example, if you were to deposit you know, a Bitcoin and then like withdraw it a, a minute later, then you know it would be pretty easy and obvious to to see that the, the high likelihood of the those two transactions are the same person. Um, but even in the, in the case of like of Monero, for example, when you send uh, a transfer token to Monero, you actually cannot spend that UTXO for, I think it's like 20 blocks, right? They kind of force you in some sense to, to not spend that UTXO for some period of time. And the reason why they don't, they, they force you to do that is because if you spend it immediately afterwards, then you kind of degradate the quality of the ring signatures that are trying to obscure the information because every time there's a transaction in Monero, there's actually 10 transactions that are happening. Nine of them are fake and one of them is real. And it's kind of hard to discern which ones are which. But if you if you make a transaction and then do another one like moment a moment later, then you can kind of say, well, instead of there being, you know, 10 transactions, one's real and nine are fake. Now there's 10 transactions, one's real and eight are fake because it's kind of easy to tell which ones are which. And so that kind of like degrades the quality of the of the privacy, from my understanding. So it's not so much the churns that matter; it's really just the, it's just the throughput. And 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 in my opinion, we're not really close to a point where of high enough throughput on Thorchain that we could build an effective or a high quality mixer, in my opinion. But maybe I'm wrong about that. I'm not a cryptography expert. I'd be happy to to learn more from the community or others who know more about this topic than I do. But I'm open to discussing this down downstream, maybe one day. But for right now, it doesn't seem like it's all that viable. Yeah, I think for any listen, even like samurai and stuff like that, whatever you do, you need enough volume to break the heuristic. Because if you're like a 
you know, 0.1% of the transactions uh, of UTXOs that do that, it, it doesn't really have an effect. You're trying to really stuff with the heuristics enough that it's no longer valid. That's my understanding. Right. That's correct. Also brought up uh, Laban's speaker and bringing up Arabex Young. Okay. Can you hear me? Yep. Hey, yeah. Since we're talking about privacy and also throwing around Next Chain and you threw around um, Zcash, obviously Monero, we, you know, it sounds like it's been determinist too, you know, a little bit complicated, not straightforward. But for uh, Zcash, my understanding is that you would only have to integrate the transparent chain. Um, and then obviously we have the support of the community and that we had Zuko was on one of the spaces. Um, I mean, is that, is that right? That it would be a fairly straightforward uh, um, integration if we just did the transparent chain? Um, in theory, yes. Um, we've looked at that in the past. The problem we ran into, if, I, if my memory serves me correctly, is that when we did the Bitcoin uh, chain integration, it utilizes a series of Bitcoin you know, libraries um, that we pull upon to be able to do what it is that we do. And there either isn't a equivalent or a fork of that library for Zcash, or there is one and it's not as featureful or it's an older fork and they haven't pulled from the upstream in, in, a, in a good amount of time. And so I think that was the biggest blocker. And then there was a conversation at one point um, about trying to convince Z, uh, Zuko and the, uh, the foundation over the, at Zcash to like fund somebody on their side, then the devs on their side to fork these, uh, these libraries on, on, on Bitcoin or, or update them to be more, you know, more closer to the tip. And once that happens, then it becomes a lot, lot easier for us to, to do the uh, chain client work and get it all worked up and that kind of stuff. Uh, so I'm totally down to doing a Zcash or Monero uh, so it's obviously a lot easier to do, but there's still there's still some challenges to to overcome. Cool, thanks. I I also believe that um I think it's Nighthawk. They're I think they have a wallet and they have a dev team. They've mentioned that they were working on a Thorchain integration, but I don't like I haven't really heard much about that. Like I like I've heard no discussion about that at all, really. So whether that's still in progress, I or, or not, I'm not really sure, but. They have, um, like, there are teams that have voiced interest in actually developing the, the Zcash integration. So I, I think Nighthawk, Nighthawk said they were targeting some kind of, like, Q4 dev work for this. So it might be good to, um, it's probably good for my list to, to poke these guys and, and see, uh, you know, what their status is, like, whether it's something they're going to work on or not. Um, but there definitely is interest from that side of things. And also like that's a good one to add to the, uh, the, the next chain list, I think. Certainly. I totally agree. Cool. Um, one other thing I wanted to bring up, I, I pinned a tweet to the top of the space. Uh, it's a, so, uh, Noah Jessup, who is, um, one of the, the founders of, of Nine Realms, also, um, you know, institutional investor at Proof Group, uh, published a report on Dorchain and, and Rune uh, just today. So definitely go check that out, retweet, like it, um, or just, just read, the, read the PDF. And it's a, um, 
it, it's a pretty nice view at just like, you know, 10,000 foot view of Thorchain and just a really nice analysis of, uh, uh, of the fundamentals of the network. So if you're in, like, if you're here, then yeah, I'm, I'm assuming you're interested in Thorchain, but definitely check out the, uh, the institutional report that, uh, that Noah published earlier today. It's, it's got a lot of really, uh, great info and, uh, thoughts in there. And, uh, yeah, Noah is just a huge supporter of the, uh, of, of the protocol and, uh, definitely, um, you know, doing everything you can to help the protocol grow and succeed. So great, great report. I don't know if you guys have read it yet, but, uh, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, it's definitely well, well written for sure. Yeah, look through the thread, not the full report yet, but but seemed really high quality. So yeah, really cool. The other thing um, similar to that, uh, CTO Larson or Larson, I'm not sure if I pronounced his name right, but he came out with a really good update video the other day. I'm gonna see if I can find it and pin it here somewhere. Uh, but that didn't want another good one worth taking a look. Yeah, he's pretty well researched and, and presents like a very very balanced view of things for sure. So like, um, yeah, definitely check that one out. I, I really enjoyed that. Um, yeah, only only like a couple of like small nuances that, that he got wrong, which I think is like pretty tough to do from someone from, from the outside of like, you know, looking at this stuff all day. So uh, great job to CCO Larson on that. Him and I are, are chatting about um, doing a little like sit down chat and uh, recording it and putting it on on the interwebs so uh, something to look forward to nice man that'll be awesome i really i'm actually would be really excited to talk to him specifically because uh one of my pet peeves in i'm like i've done interviews you know a bunch throughout the years and and one of my pet peeves of doing interviews is that, like that i don't get asked difficult questions like i really like it when people like you know give me the hard stuff Right, the, the non-rosy stuff, and we have an honest and clear, uh, you know, conversation with those things, and and so I think CTO Lars, he's like very good about having a very measured way of looking at things and not getting too like, you know, pumpy about things or whatever. He's very um, objective in the way that he looks at things, which is something I really value and appreciate about him. And so I, I feel like if him and I had our conversation, he would ask me some really difficult or tough questions, which I would be you know excited to to answer just because. I want there to be more knowledge. I want people to be aware of not just the rosy stuff, but also, you know, the edges and, you know, and be honest about these things rather than just paint the, uh, paint the moon picture all the time. Yeah. That's why I like doing these spaces. Cause we really can just have like the open forum to be honest. Cause like, you know, most of the time, like talking short form, it's, it's so hard to be nuanced about things. And we like, we really get deep into the weeds here. So that's why I really enjoy just coming on with you guys and like, you know, get, get, getting deep into it because, uh, you know, there's a lot of complexity going into this whole thing. I, I can give you some difficult questions if you want, Chad. <laughs> hey, man, uh, always down for us. I always show up we'll in these, these spaces and, and people are welcome. Anybody can come on stage and ask me any question they want, you know, and I'll do the best I can to answer it. So. I, uh, I'll give you a, a simple I'm trying to figure out why does the ad liquidity, why does the prize ad liquidity memo V1 go to the archive file? But that's different. Um, the share factor. So the 
one of the things, you know, the incentive pendulum, the incentive pendulum doesn't move to the node because of the effective hard cap, which means it can't swing freely. And I think that's because the free of moving to the LP side and the node side was part of the original design for ThorChain. Um, but with the effective hard cap, it can't move all the way to, well, you know, if, if the, you can't have the hard, the total pooled equaling the um, total bonded because of the effective hard cap. But that means that nodes are always going to get, I think, a better deal from memory. So are there any thoughts around changing that um, to, to cater for the effective hard cap or the security cap? Yeah, nodes actually get a worse deal because it can never swing completely in their favor. <laughs> it's, it's something like that because it was – there's a whole history to it because the, um, the incentive curve was also added, I think, instead of 50% because nodes were getting paid too much. So then, because instead of having the 66-33 split in optimal, it was the incentive curve changes it to a 50-50. But yeah, it's, it, I forget the details, I did a write-up, but it can't move freely because of the uh, effective hard cap like it once did. And I know that's not 100% right, and I was wondering if there's any plans to change that or to address that. Yeah, so... Um... When we actually in introduced the idea of the effective hard cap, was it was a correction to the economics. That's something we realized we, we had missed in the initial kind of like um, writing of the code, and so we implemented it. And I remember having a, a, a debate or, or with some of the devs about you know changing this as well, the thing that you're mentioning. And it was something that I advocated we changed as well, and, but it was just kind of like I guess I just lost that particular argument at the time. And I don't even remember off the top of my head what the argument was against it. But fast forward to now, um, that was like, what, like two years ago, something like this, a year ago? I think, yeah, about closer to two. And and I think there's more support amongst the devs to, to change the behavior. So and I think it probably will happen at some point. The reason why it's not done now or we're not pushing for it now, it's just, it was largely because of the amount of, of um, ILP liability in the network. And so to shift that, Get the you know while runes at a dollar or a sub dollar, um, and have a at the time there was like you know 15 million or something like this ILP liability to do that at that moment and then all of a sudden like decrease the yield of LPs. We were a little bit nervous about doing that and then causing a bunch of LPs to leave, which would cause a bunch of ILP to be paid out, which caused a bunch of rune to exit the reserve. Like we didn't want to create more incentive at that moment for that kind of behavior. And so I think the, the, the general viewpoint that I have is that I'm all for changing it and correcting this thing that you're referencing, but I would just want to wait for ILP liability to be relatively low, you know, when ruins at, you know, $2 or $3 or something like this, where the ILP is total ILP liability is like under a million rune or 500,000 rune or some, some number. And so we're not too far away from that. And now that we've had room kind of pump a bit since then, since, since the like sub, sub dollar price, uh, so the ILP liability today is relatively smaller than what it was, you know, a few months ago. Uh, so at some point, I think, I think we probably will change that, and there will probably be uh, a vote or an ADR to change that uh, that that kind of that economics there, just to kind of create the full swing uh, in either direction. So really, take it back to the original vibe. Yes, I think that the intention of myself and other other people is to bring it back to the original intention and, and uh, what we had changed like a couple of years ago probably wasn't. I mean, it's, it's fine, like it's like it's going to cause any significant issues, but 
uh, it wasn't the right thing to do in hindsight. Uh, Finn Blue. And I think there's someone else that was up here. Anyone else can can come up. After these questions are done, we'll, we'll wrap it up. Something. Yeah, so I had a question about uh, about streaming uh, into lending. Um, I was just wondering, as as I understood the the current design that doesn't have streaming into lending, part of the defense mechanism for the protocol is if there if there's a panic, and you know whales are trying to exit all of a sudden, they're going to pay pretty huge slip, and the people who aren't paying attention are going to be getting ten thousand APY, real APY, or whatever it is, and so when they finally wake up, they're going to be like, well, I did pretty well, so I'm not going to leave, um, and and the the slip you know, on the, on the, the out of the, the loan is kind of what to some degree protects the protocol. How does that, how does that change now that, uh, now that people can stream, uh, particularly stream out of a loan, uh, if, if there is some sort of a panic, um, how does that, how, how's the protocol still protected? Yeah, good question. So, um, the more, if you do a streaming swap, the more subtrades you have, the more savings you have, right? And you have a diminishing return, like every additional uh, sub swap is diminishing returns from the previous one about how much additional savings you have. And so um, the network takes, um, so if you want to calculate what the savings are of that, so say you had 10, 10 swaps, for example, in a, in, a, in a streaming swap, and you want to know how much savings that is, you're effectively doing, it's, the math is 10 minus one divided by 10 in this particular case. So it's, it's nine divided by uh, uh, 10, so it's basically 90%. And so if you just do the math and you, you create all this stuff, you can actually calculate to a reasonable degree. It's actually not precisely accurate, but it's reasonably accurate to, to figure out how many swaps will give you how much of, of a savings, right? And so to, ad to address this concern that you're talking about, the network will apply a, a max number of sub swaps on a streaming swap that's used for lending purposes to either enter or exit a loan. And so the, the total max quantity that it will allow kind of gets tuned down, right? The more trade volume there is in the layer one, layer one pool. So in a scenario where um, say at, we're at a place where we're kind of sitting still, like we're pretty neutral on, on the on the volatility of the layer one pool. It's kind of you know the, the pool depth of the derived virtual pool is let's just call it ninety five percent of the layer one. Then at that point, with this mathematics of how it works, you would only get a maximum number of, of twenty swaps for a particular streaming swap. And this this is like a complete neutral. Everything is fine. Nobody's price manipulating or nobody's panicking or any of these things. You get tw you get basically twenty swaps. But when it, as soon as it drops down to, to 90, right, uh, from 95 to 90, you now get 10 swaps, right? So you've also, you've also just lost the total swaps that you can have. It's now at 10. And it goes down from there, right? So you start at 20, then you go down to 10, and it goes down to 9, 8, blah, blah, blah. And so eventually you get to the place where you get to um, 49.999999. And once you get to that place, the, the max number of streaming swaps is now one, right? Which is basically not a streaming swap anymore. It's just a single trade. So the network will, will dynamically kind of reduce the number of streaming swaps that you are allowed to have for this particular entry or exit based upon the amount of volatility in, or, uh, of, of the layer one pool, right? 
Now, the other thing you have to be kind of aware of is that as the layer one, as a derived virtual pool is getting more and more shallow because the trade volume is increasing because people are panicking or whatever the hell the scenario is, and it's getting more and more and more shallow, that means that each individual subswap of this, like this, you know, trade is actually reducing, right? So if it was just like 100% to 100%, everything's at full capacity, no reduction in the virtual pool, you're going to get, let's just, I'm making up numbers here, let's just call it $5,000 swaps, right? That's, that's the, that will give you five basis points because of the depth of these two pools, it's about $5,000. Now, if you reduce one of those pools to be 90%, it's no longer $5,000. Now it can be, you know, I'm making up numbers, $4,000, $3,000, whatever the number is. And it just increasingly gets, gets smaller and smaller. So in order to maintain that five basis points on, on the pool is becoming shallower and shallower, one of the two pools becoming shallower and shallower, the number of swaps that you need to get to maintain that five basis points, like low slippage, increases from maybe initially it would have taken five trades, but now because the pool is so much more shallow, you now need 15 trades or 36, 36 trades or 102 trades or, you know, whatever it is. And so the more shallow the virtual pool gets, the more trades you need to make in order to maintain that same 5% basis points. But at the same time, the virtual, uh, the, 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 the cap on the streaming swaps for lending is being reduced, 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 reduced. So in a situation where everything is healthy and everything's fine and nothing's happening, well, then the, Pools are deep, right? And the amount of streaming stuff you can have is will probably be close to around around twenty, right? At any given moment, probably, right? And that's pretty good. Like that's basically a streaming stuff. Most trades can do under 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 twenty trades, and everything will be fine. And you get the five basis points. Everything's cool. And everything's great. But as soon as things get more more shallow, more trade volume, more shallow the virtual pool, you need more trades. Now you said twenty, you now need forty, and because the the depth is now smaller as well. You now can't do 20, 40. You can't, you can only do five. And because you're doing five, not 40, you're not getting five basis points. You're getting, you know, 20 basis points or 50 basis points or whatever the hell the number is. And so it just dynamically scales down streaming swaps as trade volume increases to counteract the, the, the consideration or risk of somebody doing a, a, a price manipulation, which by the way, like price manipulation, uh, becomes more difficult in a streaming swap because it's not happening in the moment, right? So if you price manipulate in a and you get this like streaming swap that's happening over a, a period of blocks, whatever that is, it's actually you have to maintain that manipulation of that price for extend for some period of time, which become more and more expensive because our bots are fighting you. You're trying to manipulate the price, which is very expensive for you. Our bots are taking use of that money that you're spending, and they're they're cashing and they're making huge dollars. They're happy as the clams and they're constantly making money, more and more money. And you start fighting the ARBs and liquidity, giving money to them as the streaming swap is going along. It actually makes it more difficult to, to, uh, to price manipulate with streaming swaps. It actually, you know, but it does not change the whole thing about like panics and that kind of stuff. Right. But if, a, if there's a panic happening, then naturally the virtual pool becomes shallower. The number of swaps you can have is reduced so forth and so on. You guys really did think of everything. Thanks, thanks for the uh, thorough answer. Yep, no worries. Cool. Uh, last question: Does that so does, is that based off when the streaming swap is initiated, or can that change if the volatility changes uh, while the swap is in progress? Uh, good question. Um, 
in terms of like the size of the tr each yeah. trade, whatever? Yeah, yeah. So the, the, the number of streaming swaps that can be completed for the loan open or close. Yeah, so the number of streaming swaps that can happen is it only applies at the beginning of the, it doesn't change during the trade. It only applies at the, be, at, the, at the beginning of the trade. You see what I mean? Got it. So if, if you get in a, a, a swap with, you know, 20 sub swaps and volatility increases after that point, then that's not, um, that's not relevant to you. Your, your swap goes through as normal. Yes. But at the same time, because the virtual pool is becoming more shallow because right. you start your streaming swap and over the next five minutes, let's just call it, it becomes a lot more shallow. You're exposed, your price exposed to that shallowness and you're still making like trades that are that are, are good for uh, you know really deep pools but now it's become really shallow so you're actually paying a lot more fees you know than you were at the beginning of your trade the beginning of your stream, streaming swap so that that all takes an effect as well all right there's two more audience members with questions let's just let, let them get up and ask and then we can wrap it up Oh, yeah. Uh, Thor, dude. Hey, what's up, fellas? Okay, Chad, you said you like hard questions. I've seen a couple tweets lately that have said we are going to integrate maybe with MetaMask on September 11th. Um, I was just seeing if that's true. And, yeah, if you could clarify that, because I've been in a couple arguments lately with a couple of dudes saying that it's not true. So I was just going to see what you say. Also, if you need an intern, you know, somebody to cook for you, travel around with you, um, do whatever you got to do. I'm your man. So, uh, yeah, yeah, that's about it. That's all I got for you guys. But yeah, I'm ready to go though. You pay me about 50,000 in ruin a year. I'm good. <laughs> all right. We'll see you. <laughs> How are you with watching kids? You, you good with kids? Dude, I'm awesome with kids. That's, that's what I'm doing right now. But you know, Hey, I fished <laughs> before a uh, financial advisor, whatever you need, I can do it. All right. Well, let me answer, let me answer your, your your question about MetaMask. Um, here's my knowledge and understanding that as, as I'm aware, the only thing I'm aware of with MetaMask is uh, I believe that the Shapeshift community is is working on a uh, an app. Like there's a way you can build an app within MetaMask, uh, and they have, they have a term for it. I'm blanking on it right now, but um, that the Shapeshift community is building an app within MetaMask that will allow you to trade on ThorChain within the MetaMask app. So it is coming, but it's not like built into the core trading of MetaMask itself. It's like a separate thing you have to go to and like install and like run and whatever. I would obviously much rather see, and hopefully maybe one day this will actually happen, but uh, like be built into like the core swapping functionality of MetaMask uh, at some point in the future. Nice, cool. Thank you. That's awesome. Cool. Uh, lastly, Juggernaut. Hey. Hey. Can you hear me? Yes, sir. Go ahead. Yeah. Uh, maybe better like this. No. Yep. You're good. Yep. You can hear you. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Um, I would ask a. Uh, a question. I, I'm sure that you you're. Uh, uh, you put all secret breaker for uh, uh, like 
for the first uh, MCCN launch, there there was gaps to to uh, to get to battle testing. Uh, I, I just have something. I'm sorry, it burned my head. Maybe it's a redundant question for you. Maybe you uh, already uh, hear, uh, heard that. Uh, it's something in my head for months. Uh, uh, we are okay on the fact that more TVL include. Uh, rune price uh, rising uh, allow the creation of synthetics. Okay, synthetics are many usage. Okay, uh, let's say the worst case tomorrow uh, a brutal drop. What happened to those scenes just created? Sorry, you... what, 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 what happens? Uh, uh, it gets robbed, is that what you said? Imagine, imagine tomorrow there is a brutal drop, okay? Uh, uh, include of the room price, Bitcoin price, everything drop for uh, any reason. Uh, what happened to all synthetic creatures uh, by by the 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 the, the increase of uh, TVL and uh, increase of uh, of room price? Yeah. So um, if both room and the assets are both dropping, theoretically speaking, it matters how much. So if, if they drop the same amount, then basically nothing happens and nobody has any, any change to their position other than just the monetary values that decrease through the market conditions. What matters to the protocol or maybe to LPs, uh, if Rune dives more than the asset for whatever reason, uh, then effectively value is moved from the LPs to the savers to ensure that they they, that they're that they're since reserved the same amount of purchasing power that they can you know they can close their their synth position and, and get back their layer one asset the Bitcoin or whatever it is so that that's that's the risk that the LPs are taking that they're that they are uh, are being price exposed to, to rune a little bit heavier than just being price exposed to it by itself and so if rune's price is underperforming uh, LPs can't take much of a hit they kind of have like reflexivity on their yield. Like on a bear market, they're going to have kind of lower, lower um, yield. And in a bull market, they're going to have significantly higher yield, right? Just, just naturally, it's probably going to happen. Um, and in an extreme case, where you have a lot of synthetics and the room price is goes down a lot and the other assets that goes down, just not much at all. That can create, uh, and in theory, you could create a scenario where the pool can be, actually become insolvent. That the value of the synthetics is worth more than the value of, of the pool itself, then you can, you can then you can get to a, a pretty dangerous situation where it becomes uh, um, an insolvent pool. And for the most part, that's not really likely to happen, but it certainly can happen. And, and if it does happen, it's most likely going to happen 
and then move from a bull market to a bear market, right? So if you look at the last bull to bear market, Rune went down 20x relative to the dollar. It went down 6x relative to Bitcoin. It went down 5x relative to ETH. And so there's a correlation there of like the more lower cap, lower cap the asset is, the more uh, and the more similar the the, the cap is to, to Rune, the you know the, the they go down more or less the same, right? Like it gets closer and closer. So in that scenario, where in the last, if we had the since today of savers today, we as we had it at the last bear, start of the bear market, which we didn't at the time, we didn't have savers yet. Uh, there would have been a, a lot of liability on the protocol, specifically that's being placed on on LPs, right? And, and LPs could be theoretically even zeroed. And that's in, in the hypothetical scenario. That's why we created the PUL. The PUL comes in and, and it, it provides liquidity, becomes the LP of last resort to help support the LPs and protect those LPs and ensure that the pool does not become insolvent and these kinds of things. Um, similarly, we just started our conversation. This is actually a decent topic to talk about here. Um, or maybe we can save it for another time, Kyle. I'll leave it up to you. But um, is that we, that we can create a backstop or a circuit breaker on the synthetics to ensure that we don't we never get into that situation. And in the event that there, that does happen, where the price of ruin is really doing like hitting hard relative to the assets for some reason, that the network can resolve itself by basically getting uh, savers to leave. Right, and, and get them to go and, and not just hold on and, and let the room price continue to dive and have more losses to the LPs and get them to actually just exit the system entirely. And there's a couple of different ways of doing that. We talked about you know negative rate interest rates, you know, if, the, if we're over the synth cap. So the POL has been exhausted, the, uh, the yield of savers is like basically zero at that point anyway, and people aren't leaving still for whatever reason. Uh, that's one way of doing it. The other way of doing it we talked about is. Um, forced ejections, so the network might do like a partial Ragnarok, picking probably the the last in. The last in is the first out, with the exception of maybe like the last thirty days to to make sure that nobody has a has a negative leaves in a negative balance. But like that's that's something we we've been talking in the community for the last week or so, a little less than a week. Is like how do we build a backstop to synthetics so that if things were to go like horribly wrong. Or, or, or the rune price would really go down. There's just a lot increases liability on the, on the protocol itself or on the LPs. How do we counteract that and keep everything safe and good and, and whatever? And I think those that circuit breaker that we've been talking about is a really strong solution to that. To the point where, you know, I'm not really terribly concerned about synths anymore. Like I've always said personally that like synthetics is probably a greater risk to the protocol or a greater likelihood of, of being a some sort of failure or a catastrophic failure on the protocol than lending is people are focused on lending people are focused on algo stable tor and people focus on derived assets and the minting and burning blah, 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 blah. and it's, it's largely because of like a ptsd from terra but those actually systems are actually much more safe that people get a credit get a credit for not to say that they could never never fail or it's impossible for them to fail or anything like that but just like to me those things are much lower risk than synthetics and so once we have some sort of backstop or, or circuit breaker on the protocol to help to ensure that we can handle that scenario well and get ourselves out of that situation just naturally, then I feel much more confident about you know synthetics and how we handle the next bull to bear, which is not for another, you know, probably four or five years or something like this. Does that make sense? Yes, totally makes sense. Um, I'm 
sorry to ask some dumb questions sometimes, but you know, you're all technicals and uh, it's not um, um, understandable by everyone. You see what I mean? That's why I, I uh, ask questions with words that everyone understands. Okay, I think uh, I think you answer to everything in few words. That's it. No, it's a good question to ask. Thank, thank you for asking. Cool. Thanks. Yeah, yeah. We we can let's talk about that um, probably next week once the ADR is out, or I don't know if it'll be out. Um, well, like when is ADR will be out? But uh, we we can have a pretty in-depth discussion about like you know the different like pros and cons of doing like negative interest rates versus forced ejection of savers and what the implications of of all that is. So um, yeah. That'll, that'll be a good topic for uh, for another day, I think. And uh, obviously not something that's like like pressing as in like, hey, we need a solution to this right now. But, um, you know, that is something that like with, with stable savers uh, just becomes more reliability on the network and is going to need some kind of backstop um, that's like protecting anything. It's, you know, passive or apathetic savers who uh, who, you know, Create, create a liability for the dual LPs. So this is all done to protect the dual LPs who are the ones that essentially back since. Yeah, right. It's really the savers on stables that introduce significantly more uh, protocol risk to the protocol and to the LPs, which is why, which was what sparked this whole conversation about building a, um, a backstop to, to kind of ensure we can always handle any situation and handle it well. Yeah, so POL is first line of defense, and then comes, uh, you know, a more drastic measure of having to kick savers out of the pool and say, like, you know, re-enter later at another point. Yeah, I would even say the, the first line of defense was just the interest rate for savers. And so it, it asymptotes to zero as we get closer and closer to the synth cap. So people might people might leave because of the, the yield is not high enough. That's probably the first thing. And then when we get to a certain point, the... The POL, that'd be the second line of defense, the POL de deploying capital. But if the POL is not able to deploy capital either because maybe it's run out of capital, like it's a cap on how much room the POL is allowed to deploy, or maybe that's because the TVL cap is hit and it just there's no more space to be deployed in the pools. That'd be another you know case and scenario. Um, and so maybe that's the case. And so it can't deploy more liquidity because of that. And then if that was the case, then we rely on this kind of backstop to be like, you know what, let's Let's take a little bit more of a nuclear approach to, to ensuring that everything is safe. Sweet. All right. That should be, uh, should be about it then. Good space, guys. We'll uh, see you next week. Sounds good. See you guys. Later, guys.